chapter 16 again yet again but I have at least a little confidence this morning that we're going to get through this we're going to finish this chapter today a little so we'll see how that God and Father, as we bow before you this morning, we are thankful again for the gift of eternal life through thy beloved Son. We thank you for this uh, opportunity this morning to look into your word and think about some important lessons for us. We ask, as we've just sang, uh, that your spirit might uh, enlighten and illumine us uh, to know thy truth and to, and to obey it and to walk in thy ways. So lead us, we pray, and help us this morning. We thank you again for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in that second half of the book of Numbers, and I'm determined not to do a whole lot of uh, review because I've been, uh, likened, I've been likened to a soap opera. So that if you miss two or three times... <laughs> if you miss two or three times when you come, you can just pick right up where you left off, and it's as I back up so much. <laughs> so I thought oh, I'm going to have to adjust my ways here a little bit. Although <laughs> I think that's pretty funny myself. We so I'm going to stick with 16 today. I'm not going to back up at all. However, I will say this much. There we go. <laughs> we're in the second half of the book of Numbers, and so we're we're dealing with the new generation of uh, the, this people in the wilderness. The old generation. Let me follow my notes a little bit. The the new gener the old generation, which I have likened to the old man. The old is under the sentence of death, and his carcass must fall in the wilderness. That is where. Uh, he was left at the end of chapter 14. And, <clears throat> and I have suggested that a parallel exists between the old man slash new man of the Christian experience to this first half and second half of the book of Numbers. Romans 8, verses 6 to 9 read like this, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity with God against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they which are in the flesh, the old man, they cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. So we have this... <coughs> By the gracious work of God in us, the old man, that man of flesh, the man of sin that we have uh, um, lived under as children of disobedience was part of our life. That was our way and is the way of all mankind. Died with Christ. The old man has been put off. And uh, 
Yet, even though the Spirit of God dwells in us, as we just thought about in Romans 8, we have put off that old man, which is corrupt according to its deceitful lusts. We have, as uh, we're following in this book, an added dimension of worship, uh, which was outlined in chapter 15, and we talked about that. I'm not going back. Yet our struggles and difficulties are not over. We're still in the wilderness. In fact, God subjected the new generation, this, these little ones that he would take into the land, 40 years of wilderness wanderings. When you think about it, that was a, that's a huge lot longer period. You know, if we, we won't get there, but someday, uh, if you read in Deuteronomy's uh, first chapter, you'll find that uh, there's 11 days journey from, I believe it's from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. You know, it was 11 days wilderness journey. If you just kept marching, you just went straight ahead. The children of Israel, when it came out of Egypt, uh, they spent a year at Sinai receiving the law and entering into that covenant with God and building the tabernacles and so that God could dwell in their midst and getting organized and ordered as a nation uh, to march in, a, in an effective and uh, a disciplined way through the, through the wilderness so that they'd be prepared to enter into the promised land uh, and so forth. So maybe a year and a half, maybe two years, at the most, in the wilderness. Had they gone the, right, the direct route, but this new generation is subjected to 40 years in the wilderness wandering. Isn't that something? That, to me, that was a striking thought as I was comparing it. How much longer a time? It's even harder, apparently. To be spiritually minded. You have a, a whole lot more wilderness experience under the spiritual mind. Just something to think about. In 40 years is a number of testing and proving that God would subject the new generation to in the wilderness. And I think some Christians are sort of blindsided by the, the, uh, the trials of the wilderness wanderings. <clears throat> They're not expecting to face the kinds of temptations and difficulties and trials that we do face in the wilderness as we march along. There is no shortcut either through this whole process. The wanderings of the wilderness were necessary in the mind and wisdom of God for the people of God to endure, to be, to, to learn His ways. There were several hard lessons that needed to be faced for this new generation in the wilderness, and one of them is in this chapter, first one is in this chapter 16 that we're studying and we're thinking about. It's, uh, it's Korah's attempt to overthrow Aaron as the high priest and step into that position himself. And that is coupled with the, uh, and it always is, 
It necessarily would have to be coupled with Dathan and Abiram's challenge to Moses' authority. And so the two go hand in hand. Because in Moses and Aaron, the leadership that God has ordained for his people in the wilderness is actually a picture, they were uh, uh, provide a prototype for us of the Lord Jesus before his people, the church, in this age. And, and of course, it, it's you need both of them to get a, 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 a good picture of Christ and his ministry to us. He is, like Moses, the Lord. He is the Lord. I didn't bring it along. I had begun to compare, make a little chart. I was thinking about putting this thing up and, and saying, let's, let's just chart a few thoughts about what is implied under the Lordship of Christ over the church. He, he, has, he, gives, he, he said to the disciples as he washed their feet, he said, uh, you call me Master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. So there's, there, there is his direction, his directive to us. His, he, he is, as Lord, mandates things for, uh, for us in our lives. Paul writes to the Corinthians, If any man is spiritual among you, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you, and of course he's referring directly to all of his instruction concerning the structure and the function of the New Testament church, as we as believers gather together. And some of the things that he has written in those chapters and in that, and right there in particular in chapter 14, some pretty controversial amongst us doctrine. But Paul says, makes no apology, but he says, the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. The Lord is right to command because he's Lord. He is our head. He is our master. And he has supreme and complete authority over his people. The Lord. Lordship also implies ownership. We belong to him. He has bought and paid for us. Oh, he spared no expense in procuring us as his own possession. Paid for us with his own precious blood. Wow. So the lordship of Christ is something to think about. And Moses, as a leader of the people gives us a little prototype of Jesus Christ as Lord. And then Aaron, side by side with him, a prototype of the Lord Jesus as our priest. So on the one side, he gives us commands and holds us accountable. On the other side, he also makes us acceptable and, and brings us to God in the value and virtue of his own person and his work on our behalf. Wow! Both sides of the, of the picture are so beautiful to contemplate. The graciousness of a priest who is willing to actually enter into whatever suffering the people of God might enter into 
He tasted it himself. He experienced it. He learned obedience by the things that he suffered. He was made complete, therefore, fully, fully rounded out, as it were. A high priest who can feel what we feel. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He has compassion and is able to minister to us in every possible need that we have. That's our high priest. And beside that, as God, he knows the whole story of what is required to bring us to God, making sure that there's nothing missed. (laughs) There's nothing missed. There's no infraction possible because he has covered every base by his perfect work and his great work, work on our behalf. And as our great and marvelous high priest, he will lose nothing because he ever lives to make intercession for us. Oh, wow. There's a lot more. We'll think about some more of that. Because this is uh, Korah's, the first challenge for this new generation is the person of Christ and his work for us. Recognizing that, <clears throat> Paul writes to the Colossians that <clears throat> beware, somebody might rob you of your... <clears throat> How's he put it? If you don't hold the head, I poor paraphrase there, but look up Colossians in chapter 3, I think it is. How important it is for us to acknowledge and recognize the Lord, who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what he has done on our behalf as we gather together in his name in particular, but in our lives, but of course, but as we gather together in his name, how important it is. It's first and foremost. It is first and foremost. I kind of doubt that Korah himself personally realized that in his attempt to displace Aaron as priest and, and, and put himself in that place, that he was in fact waging an assault against the promised Messiah. I doubt that he thought that through that far. But that's what it was. Paul, or Moses speaks of uh, him in, he writes it like this, in verse 11, no, in verse, uh, yeah, in verse 11, for which cause both thou and all thy company are gathered together against the Lord. Who is Aaron that you murmur against him? You think you're you think you're targeting Aaron? No, no. It's the Lord who is represented by Aaron. And and that is our lack of insight, Korah's lack of insight. And the full impact of what he was doing is not an excuse for him. God judged him so severely. God knew and recognized the significance of what Korah's attack really meant. Korah had apparently forgotten how Aaron was inducted into the priesthood. Back in Exodus 28 and 29, it it, uh, gives us the details of how 
they uh, brought the priesthood, uh, you know, how Moses or Aaron and his sons were, were brought into the priesthood and given that honor and that responsibility. They were given these beautiful uh, garments for glory and for beauty. And thou shalt put them upon Aaron thy brother and his sons with him. This is God speaking, of course. And shall anoint him and consecrate them and sanctify them that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. And then in chapter 29, when they actually put it into practice, I shall take Aaron and his sons and bring them unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. You shall wash them with water. You shall take the garments and put upon Aaron the coat and the robe and the ephod and the curious girdle and the, of the ephod and shall put upon his head the mitre with that inscription in it, Holiness unto the Lord, that golden crown. Put the holy crown upon the mitre and then Thou shalt take the anointing oil and anoint and pour it upon his head and anoint him. That is Aaron. Anoint Aaron with the anointing oil. And then it goes on to talk about how they bring the sons in and consecrate them as well into the priesthood. But Aaron, in a very special way, received the anointing oil with the robes which were designed for glory and for beauty. <clears throat> Apparently, Korah had forgotten some of that. He seemed to think that the priesthood uh, was picked, the priest was picked by the people. That it was sort of a, a popularity thing. <laughs> He seemed to have that in mind, it seems to me, because he had uh, convinced 250 elders of Israel, I mean, nobles of the children of Israel, 250 of them, to support his candidacy and endorse him for priest. They, there they stood. We, we want Aaron, we want Korah to be our priest. Popular vote, right? That should work. That is not how... The priesthood is endorsed. Or men don't make priests. They never have. It's plain and simple. Men do not make priests. Must look at uh, Hebrews in chapter five, just very briefly. I'll slip over there. Derek is going to get there in probably several weeks. So wait, right there, going. Hebrews chapter 5, this is all about priesthood. Now, I know that Korah didn't have the copy of the New Testament to, you know, be able to see what is written here in Hebrews chapter 5, but the writer of the Hebrews makes his statement based on the obvious lesson from Aaron and Aaron's priesthood, so Korah had the information he needed to understand what the writer here is about to exert. No man, he says, in verse uh, 4, no man takes this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as Aaron was. So, 
This is not a, you don't you don't take this honor of priesthood upon yourself. That's not something that is available. No man takes that to himself. But when his call of God as Aaron was, so also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee, said also in another place, Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So I'm not too far off when I liken... I just consider the prototype of Aaron, or Aaron as a prototype of the Lord Jesus. The writer of the Hebrews did the very same thing right there. I just thought it would be worthwhile to take a couple of minutes, though, and think about how the Hebrew, the writer of the Hebrews compares, and we're not going to go through the book of Hebrews little by little, but you'll get to that here, but how he compares the priesthood between Aaron and that of Christ. Aaron's priesthood being a prototype and so forth. But, but in Aaron's priesthood, the priesthood of the, uh, under Aaron, there was a, a limited authority, really. He had limited authority in that he was not royal. He was not a king. He, he stood beside Moses, and Moses had uh, civil authority and so forth over the people, and, and he had his uh, place. But under Aaron's priesthood, but the Lord Jesus, if we were to continue to read there in 5 and 6 and 7 and so forth about Melchizedek, after the order of Melchizedek, he was both king and priest. He has, he has a full, he has full authority in his priesthood, in his operation as a priest. Aaron's priesthood was not perpetual. He was subject to death. However, the Lord Jesus ministers in the power of an endless life. Think of him. Who is our priest? Most Aaron's priesthood offered what you might call carnal sacrifices, animals upon the altar. The Lord Jesus offers a spiritual sacrifice himself and his blood. The offerings under Aaron were really not effectual. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. No, but by his one offering of the Lord Jesus, he's perfected forever those that come to God. Isn't that amazing? What a wonderful comparison to contemplate. The service rendered under Aaron's priesthood was not continual. He, uh, they, they went in in the morning and lit the, ta- the, the uh, trimmed the lamps and and so forth, they changed, you know, it was not continual. There was morning, evening, he had to rest. But our Lord Jesus never sleeps or slumbers or even tires. He makes continual intercession on our behalf. Why, Aaron and his priesthood in various times, you read about it, in Leviticus and different times that he would go in and minister. When he'd come out, he'd put off his garments, those robes for beauty and glory, glory and beauty. He would put off his garments and do some things, and then he'd come back and he'd put them on again. He'd put off his robes at times, but not the Lord Jesus. He ever appears before God on our behalf. 
before the throne on our behalf. He ever appears. He never leaves the sanctuary, as it were, and comes back in. Oh, something I forgot. No, he never leaves the sanctuary ever in the presence of God for us. Oh, what a wonderful priest we have. The atonement offered under Aaron's priesthood was not eternal. It looked forward to the the sacrifice that would finally bring in eternal salvation, eternal redemption, which was, of course, the Lord Jesus himself. He saves to the uttermost all that come to God by him. Aaron served an earthly sanctuary. Our Savior appears in heaven itself. The covenant that brought Aaron into the priesthood and that whole system, that covenant was not an immutable covenant. It necessarily was changed. The writer of the Hebrews makes that clear and explains why that first covenant must be changed, come to its fulfillment. But not the, not the covenant that the Lord Jesus has inaugurated and ratified in his blood. Once for all was his offering. He has provided eternal redemption for his people. Marvelous truth. His priesthood was not perpetual under Aaron. It was subject to death. And then it would be passed on to, the, to one of his sons. But not so with the Lord Jesus Christ. His priesthood never changes. He ever lives. Aaron's priesthood, of course, received and should have received the honor from men. All of the people of God looked to him and, uh, and recognized the dignity of the priesthood. But the Lord Jesus' honor is far greater and wider in scope, isn't it? He is before the holy angels. And God, God himself honors the Lord Jesus as the priest of his people and receives them in the merit of the great high priest. Atonement by the blood of beasts under Aaron the blood of animals. We mentioned it a little bit earlier somewhat, but here we think about it more directly. By his own precious blood, he obtained perfect reconciliation with God for his people. Not just atonement, not just covering. The word atonement means to cover it, as the word of hide it, put it out of view for the time being. But reconciliation means pure, I don't know what you call it, uh, making things right. A right relationship with God. Full peace with God. Think of it. Aaron was anointed with oil. That anointing oil. The Lord Jesus Christ received the full anointing of the Holy Spirit. The very Spirit of God. Well, I think there's a lot of other things that could be compared and looked at and thought about as we think about the the greatness of the priesthood of Christ. And... uh, But we need to get back on our on our track again. Um, 
one other note, uh, Aaron was uh, the high priest, as we would call him. He was the high priest, and his sons were also priests that served under him. They, they helped him uh, in the ministration of that holy office and all the duties that he had. They, they worked with him and served him. There's a lot to do. There wasn't any ranking that I'm aware of among his sons. There was no uh, hierarchy. His sons were his sons. They all served in the priesthood, serving their father Aaron, the high priest, ministering to the people of God, ministering to God under under the umbrella, if you will, or the, the the uh, overarching priesthood of Aaron, Aaron as the high priest above them, and they themselves all on the same plane, as it were. And I think as I contemplate the New Testament scenario, as all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are priests to God, a believer in Christ is a priest, able to minister the things of God to the people of God, able to bring offerings to God for God's enjoyment, able to be in that marvelous role in the very holy place itself. Only the priests were allowed in there. And uh, the New Testament, all believers have that privilege, but the Lord Jesus Christ is the only, the one and the only high priest and there's no ranking of the... We're like the sons of Aaron under the, under the high priest serving. That seems to me a very similar comparison in the New Testament era. So there's no ranking amongst the people of God as far as priests. Uh, no hierarchy is ordained in the, amongst the people of God. There's no uh, special order of some priests have a special calling or a special order above others. That is not New Testament. And that could be carried a little further. Where did I... I think we'll, uh, yeah, we'll think of that a little bit more in, in the future. Keep that in the back of your mind because we'll come back to some of that. The, the importance of that. The sin of Korah, someone has written, the sin of Korah and his band was that they sought the dignity of the priesthood for their own fleshly exaltation. And Moses says, you are gathered together against the Lord himself. And what, and who is Aaron that you murmur against him? We read that verse. Who would dare... Who would dare to try to put themselves in the place of Christ? And the kind of, uh, well, who was it? Who was it that inaugurated this, this rebellion? Korah's name is synonymous now with rebellion against the authority of God's order. And, Rebel- and Korah, who was he? He was the head of the uh, Kohathites. 
And the Kohathites are a tribe of, one of the families of the tribe of Levi, and we've learned about them earlier in this book. They had the highest position of the whole camp of Israel. They, them, they were the ones were given the great privilege to come the nearest to the holy things of anybody of the tribe of Israel, of all the children of Israel. When the camp was going to move and they were uh, going to take down the tabernacle and so forth, the priests would go in, take down the veil and cover the Ark of the Covenant. And they had other coverings that they would put over the lampstand and over the table showbread and over the golden altar. They covered them all up carefully. And there were several layers of covering on most of these items. After they were carefully covered and concealed, then and only then could the Levites, the Kohathites, Korah and his, come in and pick them up and carry them through the wilderness. That was their special privileged responsibility. No other child of Israel, bar, you know, not thinking the priests now, beside the priests themselves, ever get that close to this holy furniture. These, these beautiful articles of furniture designed so intricately by God himself to display the glory of his son. And the, and the perfections of his work. That's what they're designed to display. The rest of the children of Israel learned about those things from the priests telling them, teaching them the ordinances of God and the truth of God and describing these, these beautiful pieces of furniture and what they stood for and what they meant, but they never actually saw them. And they certainly never touched them. But Korah had the privilege of actually picking these up and carrying them carefully through the wilderness, making sure that they were protected from the elements by all their coverings and from anybody ever approaching or coming anywhere near to these things. Not these men were the ones that fought. They would take up arms to protect these holy pieces of uh, articles of, of worship and of service to God. And that was their role. And yet... And yet, and, Paul, and, Mo, and Moses reminds Korah, is that not enough? You have the most privileged position in all the people of God. And that's not enough? There was a cherubim that was the highest of all created beings. And his, and his function is, uh, was to protect the very throne of God and the covering. He was the cherub that covers the name was Lucifer. Highest honor of all created beings. And that was not enough. You can see the parallel between these sins, between the, what is going on in the heart of Korah and what went on before that in the heart of Satan. And so is every attack upon the person of Christ in his role and function before the people of God and the church. It's that level of seriousness, I believe. It just comes from, the, the, as it were, the top of the crust, so to speak, or is right up there. Paul writes to the... Uh, 
elders in Ephesus in chapter 20 of Acts. These are the elders of the church at Ephesus. The spiritual leadership that God had instilled in the church at Ephesus. Raised up, as we believe, if we believe in the operation of God, raised up by the Spirit of God to take this role. As it even explains here in this text. Elders in the church, Paul writes to them in verse 17. He says, sent to Ephesus, called the elders of the church. And when they were come to him, he says to them, and he has a lot to say to them. And part of the things that he does say to them, we'll skip over and run down to verse 28, for example. He says to the elders, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock of God over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. A lot in that verse, we're not going into that, but he says this in verse 29, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. This is enemies from outside the church coming in to do damage to the people of God. Watch out for that. But then he also says, also from inside, of your own selves, you, the elders, of your own selves, shall men arise speaking perverse things, seeking to draw away disciples after themselves. That's the spirit of Korah. Jude tells us that in the last days, there will be false prophets among the people of God. They will slip in unawares. They will deceive by use of fair speeches and, and spiritual sounding. They sound so good, like Korah said. He said, well, I'm concerned about everybody's holy here. You guys can't take any kind of, you can't be oppressing the people. Everybody's holy yeah, Korah sounded so good. The fair speeches are designed to deceive the simple-minded, as it were, the ones that are spiritually not, not thinking it through. And Jude tells us that in these last days, these false prophets will exhibit three primary characteristics. It'll be like Cain. We think they don't really need the sacrifice of Christ, the under, they, they discard the blood of Christ and they bring, they want to come before God in their own merit with the best that they can do. Or they'll be like Balaam. They'll be like Balaam that will say, well, <laughs> lustful, sinful things are okay for the people of God because that makes a big congregation and therefore a big offering. Uh, Balaam was he he was he wanted the money. Or and thirdly, they'll be like Korah. They'll be like Korah, a gainsaying of Korah. They will want for themselves authority and glory. That belongs only to Christ. I read this quote one other time. Um, there is no greater sin in Christendom, this is C.A. Coates, 
There is no greater sin in Christendom than that men should claim to be priests as a different class from believers in general, so that no others can minister to God as they can, nor can spiritual privileges and blessings be obtained save by their means. It is assuming a place and dignity which belongs to Christ alone as the mediator and priest. And I think that's so true because I don't think, and, it, and, and this, this kind of thing, this problem of Korah, this began early in the church history, like in the, even in the first century. In fact, John, the third chapter of John, writes, or of the third epistle of John, he writes about Diotrephes. That man, Diotrephes, loves to have the preeminence. He wants the preeminence. When the preeminent place, by God's own instruction, is given to Christ and Christ alone. The clergy system in Christianity, which has actually grown or infected to the point where it is fundamental to most Christian churches to have a pastor and a laity system. I don't think there's anything done more damage to the people of God than that. It is the spirit of Korah's rebellion. Twice the Lord warned his disciples about this problem coming. In Matthew chapter 20, he said, Jesus called his disciples unto them, and he said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles, this is how Gentiles operate, and that means the pagans, worldlings, the unregenerate, you know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. That's common Gentile government, whether it be civil government in the state levels, or whether it be CEOs and companies, or however men organize themselves for whatever purpose, somebody's in charge, somebody's exercising authority over the others, and domination. And that's the normal, and that's the way we think normally. But the Lord Jesus goes on to say, it shall not be so among you. Whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister, your servant. Whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. It shall not be so among you. There's nobody that exercises dominion and authority over the rest of the people of God. Matthew chapter 23 is the second time that he brings this uh, similar warning to the disciples, and he says uh, about these uh, Pharisees in particular, the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat, whatsoever they therefore bid you to do, observe and do, but do not after their works, for they say and do not. And he goes on to say about them, they love to be called rabbi, rabbi, and have special seats in the market, you know, special recognition in the marketplace, and special seats in the synagogue, and so forth. But he says unto verse 8, But be not you called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, all you are brethren. And call no man your father upon earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. He that will be greatest among you, 
be your servant. And whosoever will exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted and so forth. Second time that the Lord warned disciples about this terrible temptation, this terrible problem of exercising dominion over one another. That's not the way it's done in the church. That's not the way it's done in the church. And the King James uh, Version, I think influenced under the Church of England and their hierarchical system, they, re- they, re- they translate the word uh, in Hebrews 13 where it says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit them and be submissive. The rule over you means actually leadership. Obey them that, le- that have the leadership. Uh, not, and that's the way it is in the New American Standard Version that you read, Daryl, and I don't know what the English Standard has, but the, the rule over you is a poor translation. There, there is no one that has the rule over us except Christ himself. And I happen to be one of the elders here in this little assembly. I smile because we have such a tiny assembly, we hardly need such a thing. But, but that means... That should mean to you that I have come down the road a ways. I'm an old man. And in the Lord I've come down the road a ways and I've learned some things. I have some insight into the Word of God over this years and so forth. So my opinion should mean something to you in spiritual things. Right? That's what being an elder should say. That's all I have is an opinion. I cannot charge you to do this. I cannot command this. I cannot insist upon that. I have that. I do not have that kind of authority. You will answer to Christ as I will answer to Christ. He is our head. He is our authority. He is our Lord and our master. No one else is. But you'd be foolish not to consider my opinions very heavily because because of my spiritual maturity, hopefully, in Christ. (laughs) But I am not flawless, oh my goodness. I may well give you bad advice. Weigh it carefully before the Lord and by his word. And that should be how the New Testament church operates. There's no, and, it's, and it's a beautiful thing. God gave his verdict on Korah and his band. Now, by the way, I'm sure the, when the Lord Jesus said to them, if churches, he wrote it, he put it down in writing, that he hates the deeds and doctrines of the Nicolaitans. Twice he said that in the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Now, there's um, some people, and I can understand where they come from, because they, they, have, they can't betray their system. They're a part of the system that I consider Nicolaitan. The word Nicolaitan means rule over the people. Nico, to have victory. Laity, that's the people. That's the rest of us. The Lord Jesus said, I hate that. He loves. He loves, and he showed us because he did it. He loves people that serve. 
Not to rule over them, but serve. Minister to them. That's what he loves. Well, God gave his verdict on Korah and Korah's rebellion, the spirit of Korah, and Dathan and Abiram who would, who would call into question the authority of Moses, the lordship, and set it aside, disregarding the scriptures. We decide to make things go our way because that's the way we want to do it. Well, the verses of scripture that are, well, we just, you know, we just kind of, those are cultural We should have learned these lessons just looking to what God did with Korah, Dathan, and Byram. He opened up the earth and they swallowed up alive into the pit. A very dramatic statement from God. How he thinks about these things. And then the chapter, I've got to finish. I've got just, I'm going to take a couple of minutes and just finish. In verse 41, the chapter goes on then. After this has happened, after this remarkable judgment of God against this rebellion has happened, what did you expect to happen? You'd expect the people to just be on board with Moses and Aaron, right? But in verse 41, it says, On the morrow, the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel, they were so persuaded by Korah and his band, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. They were the nobles of one's people, but uh, they were, anyway, amazing. It seems to me, what are my thoughts concerning the rest of this chapter, the way this falls out? This is so shocking. You have killed the people of the Lord. It came to pass when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron that they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation and behold, cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Whoa! I think they've seen that a few times before. This is not going to be, this is not good. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Get you up from among this congregation, that I may consume them as in a moment. And they fell upon their faces. This is the third time in the chapter that Moses and Aaron are falling on their faces before God in behalf, on behalf of the sinfulness and the rebelliousness of the people. How could this happen? It seems to me that we should understand that rebellion, rebellion against authority, is so deep-seated in our hearts And even God's judgments against it doesn't seem to shake it loose. We need to be uh, honest with ourselves about ourselves. We have rebellious heart against authority. We are constantly bent that direction. And what's our hope, our only hope, of escaping the judgment of God against the rebelliousness of sinners, against the rebelliousness of our own hearts. How can we ever, how can we ever escape the judgment of God? And here, this is this is really this is really remarkable. Moses said unto Aaron, "Take a censer and put fire in there from off the altar." And that tells us about whose sacrifice is going to be accepted, right? 
take fire from off the altar and put on incense and go quickly into the congregation and make an atonement for them. For there is wrath gone out from the Lord, the plague is begun. This is unprecedented anywhere else in Scripture that I know of. That atonement is made by use of the censer and the incense, the smoke of the incense. I don't know of any other text, and neither do the commentators could ever come up with any other text, where it suggests that the censer, the incense burned on the censer, would bring or make atonement for the rebellion of the people as it did here. And so I thought about that, and I wondered about that. And I think what he's telling us here, in the context here, these censers, this is part of this chapter's text, right? What happened earlier on? Korah came, wanted to take over the priesthood. And Moses said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. You get a censer, and all your 250 men get a censer, put fire in there and put incense on it. And Aaron will take his censer, put fire in and incense on it. We'll come before God with these censers, and the one that he chooses, the one that he accepts, that's the one that will be, be priest. That's the one that will be holy. We'll, we'll let God decide. And that was Moses' test. It was the test of the censer. And what they found out, very quickly and very dramatically, God chose Aaron. He accepted Aaron's censer. And the 250 men with their censer, God burned them all right on the spot. <clears throat> the censer then, in this little portion of scripture particularly, is that symbol of acceptance before God. That symbol of being received and God being pleased with. Because that's, that's incense, it smells, its intention was to smell beautiful and, and to be appealing. And they brought it into the holy place. The scent, these, this is the incense that was burned on the Day of Atonement. They would bring it in and fill the holy place, the holiest of holies, with that smoke of that incense, that beautiful fragrance of the incense. It was to appease and please God himself. And I guess I should, we should realize that our only hope to avoid the plague of God because of our continual and incorrigible rebellious heart and attitude towards the things of God. Our only hope is the acceptance of our great high priest, the pleasure that God finds in Christ, that sweet fragrance, that sweet fragrance. He is so pleased with the perfect and complete obedience and devotion and submissiveness of his son in doing his will that that can be accepted in my place of always rebelling and fighting against the will of God and going my own way. Oh God, how I thank you for such a savior, for such a high priest. The censer is the whole story. In the whole story is the symbol of an accepted priest on our behalf. Our priest purges our sins and bears, he bears a nobler name than the angels. Hebrews 1, you're, you already looked at it. He holds an unrivaled relationship with, 
He receives worthier worship. He sways a sublimer scepter. He rules from a transcendent throne. He has a loftier lordship. He abides in complete control, is crowned with greater glory, is invested with higher honor. He bestows a better blessing. He establishes a settled Sabbath of ceaseless satisfaction. That's our priest. Established a settled rest Sabbath of ceaseless satisfaction before God. Our Father, we thank you so much this morning once again for your, your Son, our Lord Jesus, our Savior. He is our Lord. Yes, we want to honor Him and bow before Him. We want to do His bidding. We want to do what He says. We want to recognize His authority over us all. Yes, we want to obey our Lord. Oh, we thank You too for His priesthood over us and for us. Oh, what a wonder it is. That we even have the possibility of drawing near unto Thee and bringing something that would be pleasing to You, offering a sacrifice to Thee acceptable because of him and through him. Oh, we thank you for our priests this morning. Teach us many, many things. Help us to meditate and, and, and dig in deeply into the treasures of knowing and understanding and appreciating the ministry of our Savior on our behalf in the heavenlies. All that his blood has procured, all that his grace has secured, all of his ceaseless intercession is, is maintaining. Oh, Father, thank you for him this morning. And these little thoughts from these ancient stories, we pray that you'll help us to learn the lessons deeply and apply them honestly and carefully in our lives. Thank you now again, in Jesus' name. Amen.